Good morning. Like he said, short notice. <laughs> so there's nothing that should motivate you more to study the Bible on a regular basis than the chance to be called on short notice to teach because then you have something to pull from. So um, every year, beginning of the year, I try to get a focus. Where am I going to, what is my theme for the year? Um, and then kind of with that, um, I look at, okay, if this is my theme, what are some passages, books of the Bible um, that I should study to help me in this? Um, and this year, one of my themes, one of my themes, um, part of it is just kind of discipline and growth. Um, so along with that, one of the first passages I looked at was the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Um, so that was what I wanted us to look at these two weeks. That's a lot of Bible. And if you've heard me teach before, you realize that I take a lot of Bible. I take a little bit too much for the time that I have to explain it. So we're going to go really fast. Um, it's also kind of like our speaker last week um, talked about words being like apples of gold. And as I got into this, I realized this is not an apples of gold passage. This is kind of like an onion. So we're going to try to leave the onion closed and just cover as much as we can. Um, and we won't. What I really want to do um, is just take some from my own meditation in God's Word and hopefully encourage and inspire you um, and hopefully teach you a little bit um, to carry you along in your own study of the Word, um, whether it's the Sermon on the Mount, um, other passages that this might bring to mind for you. Um, I just want to kind of pass on some of what God has done in my life through this onto you. So we're not going to read it. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is a very well-known passage. Um, it's very well-known, and it's also little agreed upon. There's many different understandings or interp interpretations, but um, maybe just ways to take it, apply it. Um, but so Matthew 5 um, through 7, if you want to turn there, we'll, my hope today is to get at least through chapter 5, leaving us with two chapters for next week. Um, so what is it? Um, in Matthew, there's five major discourses or teachings of Jesus. This is the first one, Sermon on the Mount. The next one is in Matthew 10, um, where Jesus sends his disciples out. Um, it's one we could call a mission discourse. In chapter 13, we have a parable discourse. In chapter 18, we have Jesus teaching on a church. And then in chapters 24 and 25, we have the last days, Jesus teaching on um, really his return at the end. So these are the five major discourses. Obviously, there's other, um, I mean, Jesus' teachings scattered throughout the book. Um, when, when does it happen? So there's no consensus. We don't know exactly when it happens. Um, Jesus has started calling his disciples. Um, if we look at the end of chapter 4, um, we see he's called Peter um, and Andrew and James and John. Um, he's ministering throughout Galilee. 
Um, he's teaching, proclaiming the gospel, healing. Um, and so he's got great crowds following him. And he, he looks out, um, beginning of chapter 5, he sees the crowds, he goes up on this mountain, and he sits down and his disciples come to him. Um, Luke 6 is actually a parallel passage to this. Um, and some would say, well, Luke's, Luke's is a little different, could be a different time. Um, but in Luke's, um, right before it actually, Jesus calls the 12 disciples specifically. Um, so he calls, calls them, um, and then um, he teaches, teaches them really what it is to be his follower. So we see in this um, what Jesus has done. Jesus has called his disciples, and he is now teaching them what it means to be his follower, to be his disciple. Now, there's a whole crowd there. Specifically, um, Jesus is teaching his disciples for the entire crowd to hear. Um, so it's, it's a message for everyone pointed at his disciples, his followers. Um, and obviously, this is not everything Jesus taught to them. If we were just to read it, um, I didn't actually try this, but they say it takes about 10 minutes. So I'm going to guess that Jesus spoke for more than 10 minutes um, to them. So this would be kind of like a condensing, um, maybe a summary of his ma major teachings to them. Um, and it's probably not just this one event. Um, it's probably spread throughout his ministry with them. Um, Matthew followed him, would have been with him three years. Um, so he has a lot to draw from, and he's not gonna, he, he can't give that all to us. Um, so he's going to condense it, maybe organize it a little bit for us um, to understand. So why should we study this? Well, if this was Jesus' teachings to his followers about following him, then as those who follow Jesus, we should know the teachings that he gave his followers. Um, and I don't want to say, like, there's, a, there's an idea that, okay, we only follow the red letters in the Bible. We only follow the words that Jesus said. The rest of it's like, okay, but it's kind of like secondary. Well, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is profitable. Um, so there is not one part of Scripture um, that is any more... Um, that is necessarily any more important or less important um, because it is all inspired, it is all profitable to us. Um, Paul tells us that in Timothy. Um, but I think some we might could focus a little bit more closely on. Okay, this is something that, one, Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has highlighted for us a large section of the teaching of Jesus um, on what it means to follow him. So how do we understand it? How do we apply it? Um, how should we come and study this passage of Scripture? Um, and this is where it gets kind of broad. Some have taken this to um, support the idea of pacifism. We should not fight. Um, we should just be at peace. Whatever happens to us, happens to us. Um, certainly there's some verses in here that could lend toward that interpretation. There's some truth to that but that would be a, not a fully accurate understanding of this. Um, there's some that use this to support a social gospel. We just do good things, 
to bring about God's kingdom. No, there's, this encourages to do good works. Um, but that is not a good interpretation of this. Um, there's some who would understand this as Jesus offering the kingdom to the Jews. And the Jews ultimately reject their king and with it his kingdom. And today this actually doesn't mean anything for us because we're not the Jews, we're the church. So this gets pushed off to a later date, the millennial kingdom. That would probably not be the best way to take this. Um, if we just said, well, Matthew 5 through 7 was for them back then, um, but we don't actually get to profit at all from this. Um, and I think for those of you who have read it, you would say, well, there is profit in it for us. So that would not be an accurate interpretation. Luther um, understood it as revealing our sinfulness or our depravity and calling us to repentance. Um, and there is some truth to that. If we see, um, you know, we come across verses like um, verse five, chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think we could all say, well, my righteousness does not exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. So there is a, it should lead us not to despair, but we should realize our sinfulness, our depravity. We cannot meet this level of righteousness that is described um, in these chapters. So there is an aspect of truth to that one. But I would, um, I guess I would suggest to you um, something that they call inaugurated eschatology. Now there's some big words in there. Inaugurated, the beginning. We have an inauguration for a president. The beginning. The beginning eschatology, that's the study of the last time. So um, it's the beginning of the end, you could say. It's something that's already here, that has started, that Jesus has brought with him. Um, when Jesus came, he ushered in the kingdom. But this is something that we do not have yet. It's something that Jesus brought, but we still look forward to the day. I think of Romans 8, you know. We have the first fruits. We have, the, we have creation groaning, longing for the day. We know there's something coming. There's something greater coming. Yes, yes there's, there's rumblings. Um, there's murmurs of it. We have, we've you know, maybe gotten a taste or just seen a little bit of it, but we know there's something coming. So it's something that's already here, but not yet fully completed. Um, and in this, you know, we see that it is neither achievable. It's not something we can bring about on our own. Um, it's not something we can fully attain to, but it, th then again, it is not fully unattainable. It does not lead us to despair. There is, there is a middle ground here. Um, <clears throat> and I think we'll see um, also with the already not yet idea here in Matthew 5, 5, 3, we see blessed are the poor in spirit. There's is the kingdom of heaven. This is present tense. Um, in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, this is a present tense thing, but then in verse 12, it says, rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Um, and then in verse 17, verse 20, um, not 17. Nineteen. In the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. So there is an idea of present tense, right now, 
And there's the idea of, okay, a reward in heaven, something that is completed in heaven when we get there. Um, so we read it not with an exuberant optimism based on our own ability to achieve it, um, and we don't read it with a despair, like, oh, we cannot obtain this. This is something that is outside of our reach. Um, it's just not possible for us. Um, so we read it. Um, we understand it, I guess I could say, um, as attainable, not through our own self, but through the new birth. If we think of Nicodemus's meeting with Jesus, um, in John chapter 3, he talked, Jesus is, explains to John how one can enter the kingdom of God. Jesus answers Nicodemus and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is, of, when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we have to understand this passage as a righteousness that is not our own. Um, to put it out of our reach is to ignore the purpose. Jesus would not teach his followers of something that could not be achieved. Um, I think of one of my bosses, when he would give us a list of instructions, or not instructions, but a, a goal for the week. Okay, I want to get this, 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 and this done this week. Um, eventually, we realized just to cut it in half and then focus on that, and maybe we could get half of what he told us to get done done. He, he just had grandiose ideas, big ideas, and eventually it could be frustrating to us to receive that whole list of things and be like, we're not going to get it done. Or to start in on it and be like, well, it's now Friday, and we've gotten two out of six things done. So boss is going to be frustrated with us. We're frustrated with ourselves. Nothing went like it should. Um, if something is unattainable, it leads to despair. I know the goal is like, oh, if I give them this goal way over here, they're just going to go above and beyond and reach higher than they ever could. Well, a lot of times it actually leads to despair. I can't get anywhere close to that. I'm not going to reach that. Um, so in Jesus, teaching his disciples gives them something that is not, that is on their own unattain, unattainable, but that is not out of reach through the power of Christ in them, through the power of the Spirit in them, this new birth. Um, and what is... So we have to ask, okay, what is, what is this new birth? Um, in the Old Testament, Jesus says, um, not Jesus, we read of... Um, a heart of stone being turned to a heart of flesh. Um, there is a righteousness of the heart. Um, 
God's people are called to righteousness. They are called to follow the law, to obey the law, and they fall hopelessly short of that. And what they need, what the law is pointing them to, is someone who can save them, someone who can redeem them, one who will live out this law, one whose righteousness is acceptable, accepted to by God. Um, man on his own cannot achieve that. Only Christ, the Messiah who comes, um, and as we'll see in Matthew 5, um, fulfills the law, completes the law, obeys everything in the law, and whose righteousness is acceptable um, and whose righteousness can be given um, to others who place their faith and trust in him. So we see in this, these are the teachings for the community Christ is forming. What Deuteronomy was to Israel, we could see as a Sermon on the Mount being to this new community that Christ is forming, to the church, both Jews and Greeks, as we will see. He does not abolish the law, rather he fulfills the law. Now, is there a central theme in these in these chapters, and many have tried to present different ideas for it. Um, I won't say this is the central theme, but in studying through it, this is one that came, um, kind of rose to the surface for me, um, and one that I want us to trace through it, something, something to organize it around. Um, you'll see as you read through it, that there's a contrast between those who follow Christ and those who do not follow Christ, um, whether they be Jews or Greeks. Um, this new community of Christ followers is contrasted both, both with the Greeks, both with the world around them, um, but also with the religious world, the Jews. Um, they are contrasted with them also. So there's a contrast, but this contrast is based on a righteousness or good works done specifically for the sake of Christ, um, based on the new birth, as we saw. Um, so I want us to want us to look through these. Um, probably get through get through chapter five here. Um, so it starts with the beatitudes: blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, when I, when I see these, I kind of, I think of kind of like a commercial. When you see a commercial, you see the good life. I have never seen so many mundane things done in such a happy way. Um, they want to make you think that whatever toothpaste, whatever car you drive, whatever laundry detergent you use, this will make your life the best it could possibly be. Now, the only thing with the Beatitudes is they don't present what we would normally think of as a good or happy life, as a blessed life. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who are mourning. Blessed are the meek, the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. This is not one that you would find on a commercial these days. This is what the world tells you is not blessed. This is what you don't want to happen to you. Um, there's a direct contrast here in Jesus saying, 
this is what those who are of the kingdom of heaven are like. Um, these aren't specific, these aren't different groups of people. This is the, the character of one who is of the kingdom of heaven. Um, one who is a follower of this Jesus. They are poor in spirit. They mourn, they meet, they are meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. Um, and something that should come out of this um, is a theme about around righteousness or a theme about doing it for Christ's sake. Um, there's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Um, they are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Um, others are reviling them, persecuting them, uttering evil against them on account of Christ. So what they are, who they are, what their character is, is a result of righteousness, is a result of living for Christ, following Christ. That carries over to their, their actions, their attitude, um, and it affects how people treat them. This is their character. Um, and they are blessed because of it. They are blessed now, um, but they are blessed in heaven also. They have a, they have a present blessing, but it's also a future reality. And he can tell them, rejoice and be glad your reward is great in heaven. This is something that brings present joy because of a future reward in heaven. Verses 13 through 16, um, he explains to them, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. In high school, um, whenever traveling for an away game, I'd ride on, I was homeschooled, but I played for a school there in town. Um, so whenever we had away game, over a certain distance, we had to ride the bus. And so my parents would go drop me off to get on the bus with these guys. And they would always leave me with, be a brilliant beam of light and a pungent particle of salt. As Christ followers, we are called, we have this identity of being light and being salt. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus says, you are the, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Um, now, I look this up, how salt can lose its taste. And the answer that I got, I'm not, I'm not a chemist, so don't take this too far, okay? The answer I got is that salt can't actually lose its taste um, because if it's a chemical compound, and if salt loses its taste, it ceases to be salt. And you cannot make something that is not salt, salt again, okay? That's, that's my non-chemist explanation for this, okay? Salt cannot lose its taste. And parallel that with you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill can't be hidden. Um, salt can't lose its taste. This city cannot be hidden. If you're going to be salt, or if you are salt, and if you are light, you cannot lose this effect. Now, here's the other thing. Salt and light are only valuable in relationship to something else. Nobody goes and eats just salt. They do. It's weird. Kids, kids do that. Um, salt is valuable because it brings out the flavor of something else. Salt flavors something else. Light 
is valuable because it reveals something else. You shouldn't go stare at the sun. You shouldn't go stare at bright light. Light is valuable because of something else. So as salt and as light, we are pointing to something else. We are pointing to Christ. We are revealing Christ to a world that needs him. And this is what he um, gets to in verse 16. In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So our means of seasoning and shining are our good works, our righteousness. They are not done for our own sake. They are done to reveal our Father who is in heaven to the world around us. So, and these acts of righteousness we saw in the verses prior to this are the ones we are getting persecuted for. These good works are the ones that we are getting persecuted for. And that is what would bring the reasoning, I guess, for covering them. Well, I don't want to be persecuted for my good works. I don't want to be reviled. I want to be liked by people. So I'm just going to try to cover this, try to contain this a little bit. Um, yeah, I want to follow Christ, but I don't want to be reviled. I don't, I don't want to be persecuted. Um, and what Jesus is, is saying to them is, this is, look, if you're going to follow me, this is the character. This is what you can expect from me. And don't let that change how you live. Follow me. Um, be salt. Be light. And be expecting this, um, this response from others on my account. Um, and just know that you are blessed for it. There's a reward for this. Um, don't hide these things to avoid persecution. Live to glorify God. Now, in the next section, we see that Jesus, the Messiah, does not come to abolish the law. He does not come to do away with it. He comes to fulfill it. Um, he does not do away with the law. Rather, he does the law in full, and not one part will pass away until he accomplishes all of it. Um, Jesus doesn't come to relax the commandments. Rather, he, he raises the bar. Um, we are not supposed to have the mindset of getting by. All right, so this is just a passing, passable righteousness. Okay? We're not supposed to just get a C on our righteousness grade. Jesus calls us to a higher standard. And obedience is actually um, the basis for the kingdom of heaven. He says, you know, whoever relaxes these commandments, teaches others that they aren't as important, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there is an importance to the commands of God in the Bible. Um, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So entrance into the kingdom of heaven is by exceeding righteousness, which we on our own cannot have. There is an element of despair to that in saying, woe is me, I cannot, I cannot reach for that. So we are looking for someone who can. Um, and that, that is Jesus, the one who keeps the law, fulfills the entire law, um, who takes our sin upon him 
and gives us his own righteousness, clothes us in his righteousness so that when God sees us, he sees not sinners, but he sees his son. Um, and that is how our entrance into the kingdom of heaven is gained. Um, so Jesus has not relaxed the standard. Um, his followers are not those who live licentiously um, without, um, without control. Um, if you think of you know, Paul writing in Galatians, mentions or um, kind of talks a lot about this. Jesus raises the bar on the standards. Um, and we'll close, we'll close with these, these six. Um, whereas the law says, do not murder, do not kill other people, Jesus says, don't be angry with them. Okay, in these six, there's an element of, if, if you knew you were not going to be punished, what would you do without God? If God, if you could do something without God knowing, without God punishing you, if you carried out the thoughts of your heart to the end, this is what would happen. Um, and Jesus is saying, you know, yeah, you can do. You're, you're getting by. You're passing on the not killing people, okay? But you're failing in the not being angry with people. Um, and he says, don't, not, not just to be, ang- not to be angry with people, but be quick to make peace with people. Um, you cannot worship God rightly if there is wrong in your heart toward another believer. Go make peace with God uh, or with that other person, and then come worship God. Offer your sacrifices. Um, the second one, Jesus says, okay, you, you were told not to commit adultery. Okay, you're getting a passing grade there. You're not committing adultery. But don't lust, okay? Don't, um, how does he say it? Don't look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart. You've already committed adultery. You trace that out to the end, and this is what your heart would do. So the passing grade, not to commit adultery. Jesus raises the bar. Don't lust. In fact, take radical action. You need heart change. This is something you cannot do on your own. Um, The third one, don't commit adultery. Again, um, would would be the idea. But Jesus saying, don't divorce. Okay, Moses gave you a, allowed you to do a certificate of divorce. But divorce actually creates adulterers. Um, actually creates three. Um, so, yeah, you think you're getting a passing grade here, but over here, you're failing. Um, the last three. Don't break an oath. Jesus says, don't actually take an oath. Just live with sincerity. Um, retaliate in like fashion would be what the law says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, Jesus says, don't, don't actually avenge. Be very hard to offend. Be hard. Make it hard for people to wrong you. Um, and actually be generous with them. Um, you know, if someone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak also. Anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Lindsay tells me that if someone is going slow in front of me for one mile, I have to let them go slow in front of me for two miles. I don't think that's an accurate interpretation, but um, the idea remains the same. Lastly, um, the command in the Old Testament, love your neighbor. Jesus is like, that's something easy. Anybody can love someone who loves them, who's likable. I tell you, love your enemy. This is something the world does not do. 
we talked about the contrast. Christians are those who love their enemies, love the unlikable, love those who hate them and are persecuting for their righteousness and good works. The enemy is going to be like, what is going on? Why is this person doing this? Not only does, is this a contrast with the world, but this is a similarity with our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven loves those who do not love him back. Um, in our sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ, um, God demonstrated his love toward us and sent his son to die for us. So we see here the common theme of righteousness. It's a righteousness that we need through Christ, um, but it's a righteousness, it's manifested in good works to give glory to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love toward us. We see in your word that we are called to be perfect as you are perfect, and we acknowledge that we on our own are not. Um, and we thank you for your son who came, lived a perfect life, died the death that we were supposed to die, and rose again. Um, I pray that we would live as salt and light in this world. In Jesus' name we pray.